I'm going to ask you to do something a little different here. Not close your eyes necessarily. You're welcome to. But really, I just want you to kind of look, look down. Just look down at the ground or at your knees or at your lap, whatever. I want you to look down because I'm going to give you a tough assignment here. I want you to do what Bobby did for us here. And I want you to think of someone right now that's really hard for you to like. Why don't you just bring that person to mind? Some of you, you have people to choose from. Just want you to think of that person for a minute. If you're having trouble, then you're probably not engaged in life enough. Okay, you can look back up here. I want to read a story. I want to leave our time. I want to go back to the 16th century. I dusted off an old favorite book of mine back in the day that has a bunch of stories of extravagant love for Jesus. And this is in a country that's not a country anymore called Flanders in the 1500s about a young lady named Runkin. I found one. The inquisitor held up the forbidden book as he called to his assistant. Bring in the mayor and his family. Someone is studying the Bible in this house. In the 16th century, Philip II sent the Duke of Alba to Flanders to stamp out the Protestants who insisted on reading the scriptures for themselves in their own language. Anyone found studying the Bible was hanged, drowned, torn in pieces, or burned alive at the stake. The inquisitors had found the Bible while inspecting the house of the mayor of Bruges. One by one, family members were questioned, but everyone claimed they knew nothing of how the Bible got into their house. Finally, the officials asked the young maidservant, Runkin, who boldly declared, I am reading it. The mayor, knowing the penalty for studying the Bible, tried to defend her, saying, oh no, she only owns it, she doesn't ever read from it, but Runkin chose not to be defended by a lie, the book is mine. I am reading from it, and it is more precious to me than anything. She was sentenced to die by suffocation. A place would be hollowed out in the city wall. She would be tied in it, and the opening would be bricked over. On the day of her execution, as she stood by the wall, an official tried to get her to change her mind, saying, so young and yet to die. Runkin replied, my Savior died for me. I will die for him. As the bricks were laid higher and higher, she was warned again, you will suffocate and die in here. I will be with Jesus, she answered. Finally, the wall was finished except for the one brick that would cover her face. For the last time, the official tried to persuade her, repent. Just say the word and you will go free. But Runkin refused, saying instead, O Lord, forgive these my murderers. The brick was put in place. Many years later, her bones were removed from the wall and buried in the cemetery of Bruges. When I read that, I was reminded of why I love that book. Because it, what, what, what is it present in that young lady? What resides inside of her that, that would compel her to die 
rather than just voice a superficial, meaningless word. She could call it that, a superficial, meaningless word just so that she can continue leaving, living, even for Christ if she wanted. And more to our point today, what is this simple but ridiculously deep and immovable love for God that would look at the person who is inflicting her death and she would summon some sort of energy to love that person. What kind of love is it? You know. It's Christian love. That's the kind of love it is. It's the kind we're familiar with, right? It's Christian love. It's not alien to us. It's not supposed to be. But it often is. Because this kind of love goes beyond logic. It goes beyond reason. It goes beyond being rational. It goes beyond emotion. It goes way beyond feeling. It goes to another place. It goes beyond sense. And it is a departure from all normality. I got to sit with some friends that had experienced in just a, some precious moments. This, this one lady had experienced this kind of grace and love from my wife Carrie. And I got to hear her say, like with this look, like that's not normal. And she's right. The kind of love that we're talking about and that John's going to talk about today is not normal. You have to leave normal humanity and you have to com- connect to something else in order to express this kind of love, which is called Christian love. There's not another kind. This is the kind. And this is what it is. We can't pretend like it's something else. And so what would it look like if we transplanted whatever it was that was in that young lady, Runkin in the 16th century, if we took that that love that had developed for even her enemy that was killing her in the moment, and we took that kind of love for neighbor, and we put it into one, just one person in our youth group. One. One person had that. What would happen? What would our youth group's experience be if just one person had that kind of severe love, which is just Christian love, What would people who were guests in our youth group experience? What would the least of these in our youth group experience if just that kind of love was placed in one? What about in one of our seniors? What would that look like? How about in one of us ministers? Just one of us had that kind of love. One of our elders had that kind of love. What would that look like? Just one of our families in this church had that kind of love for neighbor would it look different than we look now? Whatever the gap is between what we look like now and what we would look like then, that's what John's calling us to. Because that's what Jesus called us to. And that's what he expounds upon in the verse that we're looking at today. Whatever it would look like, This is his description of it, at least partly. And you've already heard it, but I'm going to reread it just so that I can connect to it again. Dear friends, it's in 1 John chapter 2. 
Starting verse 7, dear friends, I'm not ri- I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. The, this old command is a message you've heard. Yet, I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, that's Jesus, and you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to live in the light but hates his brother is still actually in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. And there's nothing in him to cause him to stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. And so we start in this little passage with what seems to be a contradiction. And John Doyle has said to me before when we've talked about John, that John's pretty old when he writes this. And he's wondering if he's losing it a bit as he reads through some of these. Because he's like saying, this is, I'm not writing you anything new, but I'm, I'm writing you something brand new. And so, but he's describing the same thing he's writing when he says both those things. How can this be both old and new? Of course, we know love is not new. And the command was not new. Even then, Deuteronomy, you go way back thousands of years before to the books of Moses and you would find it. Deuteronomy 6, 5 is this famous Jewish phrase called the Shema. It's something that the Jews would be familiar with because they, they recite it every day, multiple times a day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then another ancient book, another book of Moses, the book of Leviticus. It's in Leviticus nineteen eighteen is also the command to love that's old. So it's been around to love your neighbor as yourself. So this love for God and love for others, John is right in saying it's not, it's not new, and yet it's new. What I'm telling you is new. So how is it new? So it's helpful to know, this is really helpful to know, that in the Greek, there are two words for new. And they have a different kind of understanding, okay? So there's the word, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, naos. Naos is new as in, in respect to age. So if I got a new shirt, I've, it's brand new. It was just printed and I just put it on. It's a, it's a new shirt. That's naos, new. And then there's this other word. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing this right. Kainos. Kainos new is new in respect to quality or kind. Okay? So like, um, it'd be like an example of a new car. Like a brand new car. It's just been built. You buy it. It's brand new. You know that smell. Some of you do. Be awesome to have that. But it, it'd be new. But then there's a new car that's of the same model, but it's different. It's changed. So I used to drive a Mustang back in high school. And so here's a picture of a Mustang, a 1987 Mustang. Okay, if you bought an 88 Mustang, 89 Mustang, 90 Mustang, 91 or 92 Mustang, you would basically get a car. It'd be new. Like if you had this one and you bought one in later years, it'd be new, Naos new, but it wouldn't be different. Okay, it'd be the same model, same engine, same kind of thing, just a little bit different. So it's new, but if you waited till 94 to buy a Mustang, Ford redesigned Mustang, they redesigned what it meant to be Mustang, and it would be not just Naos new, but Kainos new. It would be a different kind. It would be related to Mustang, but it would be completely 
different at the same time. It's new. So there's two different kinds of words here. And so when Jesus took the old commands and respoke them, they were not naos. They were not new. They were old. He took the Shema and he took Leviticus 19.18. He put them together to explain all the laws of God, all the prophecies of God, and made those two commands the non-negotiable of eternal life. It was kainos new. It was new in quality. It was new in kind. It was new in emphasis. He was changing things. He was taking some old commandments and making them new in emphasis. This command was in the law. But Jesus says, it explains the law. Love is both the reason for and supposed to be the result of the law. And that was new. He had changed it. The emphasis, and he had blown up the emphasis on love. This old command. When I was a youth minister, some of you may not know, I was a youth minister for 14 years, many years ago. And I was a single youth minister for a good portion of that. And in my office, I had a shelf with all these pictures that had, you know, when you put a frame around a picture, you're emphasizing that picture. And the kind of pictures I had as a single man were pictures of kids in my youth group and us doing ministry together. Uh, Crazy adventures that we had gone on were in there. All kinds of, like there were some verses, some special verses of mine that were framed. There was a lot of those things. There was the time when uh, we ran out of gas on the way to camp in a big yellow school bus and I got all the kids off to push the bus over the highway so that we could go fill up. That picture was framed for me and I put it right there. My skydiving picture. You know, there was lots of those things and, and, and us taking our youth group down to the inner city and working with inner city kids. That, those things were emphasized. Then I got married. Then I had kids. Then that shelf started to change. There was a different emphasis in there. Those other pictures didn't go away. But what was emphasized was my wife and my children and my family. Those other things weren't not important anymore, but these things came to the forefront. The emphasis changed. When Jesus took those two commands, he changed the emphasis. He, he moved the frame for the Jews who would have put that frame around the Ten Commandments and maybe even the 613 rules that they had extracted from the Old Testament as a litmus test for whether you're in the faith or not. He took the frame from that and he put it simply around these two commands which made up the greatest command. Love for God and love your neighbor as yourself. This would have been revolutionary to them. And most significant in this change in emphasis was him taking this little verse in Leviticus 19.18 and connecting it to the Shema. Okay, you... You and I just can't appreciate this. That when he said, when he was asked what is the most important command, they probably expected him to list the first commandment. But they probably weren't totally shocked or astonished that he used the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But when he said in the second is liked it, they they perked up. What? 
There is something you're going to put on equal standing with the Shema? Yeah, it's love your neighbors yourself. They would have been astonished at this. This would have been a massive change in emphasis and their understanding of the heart of God. Because Leviticus 19, that little verse that says love your neighbors yourself, it doesn't even get its own verse. That one verse, like it's the second part. It's like, don't get revenge. Instead, love your neighbor as yourself. Like it's packed in the middle of a couple of other, you know, a list of verses. There's do not hold a grudge on one end and don't mate different kinds of animals on the other side. That's where it is. For him to take this unprominent command that's old and put it an equal standing with love for God would have been revolutionary and convicting. Because think about it. It, it, Don't tell me this isn't relevant today. Isn't it nice and handy to be able to walk around as a Christian and declare your love for God while holding on to your dislike for that person you were thinking about? Isn't it great to be able to separate those two, put a two-wide gap between them and, and pretend that, that's what John's teaching us, pretend I am a lover of God, but I'm, I'm harboring this little grudge, this, because why? Because if I just, you just give me two seconds to explain it, you'll agree with me. And you probably would. But this is Christian love. This is Christian love. What's normal in Christian love is not reasonable. It goes beyond feeling. It goes beyond fair. If God had to only love people where it was fair or reasonable, he would have no one to love. And that's what John is telling us. John brings it to bear when he says in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light, so again, someone's making a claim, but harbors that hate for someone else is actually still in darkness, regardless of what you claim. That's the litmus test, not the 613 rules. Love. Love for your neighbor. Love for others. And then what is astonishing there that he says in the negative, there is also an astonishing thing because he says in the next sentence, in the positive, whoever loves his brother lives in the light. We would expect him to say that, but he adds this. And there is nothing in him to make him stumble. When you get this, gang, when you really subscribe to and let the Spirit turn you into a lover of all people, what John is saying is there's nothing left to make you stumble. How many of you stumble? In how many ways? In what areas? John is connecting your capacity to follow the greatest command, to love those that are hard to love with your struggle, whatever it is. Whatever it is, it's not an alcohol problem, drug problem, sex problem, bitterness problem. Whatever your temptation is, laziness problem, it's a love problem. You get that and there's nothing in you to let you stumble. This is like one-stop shopping. This is what you want to go to God to get is your growth and your capacity to love. No matter what your situation is, no matter with whom it is with, at any given time, Christian love demands, Christian love demands 
that when you ask yourself, what do I do with them? The answer is love them. Why don't you say that with me? Love them. Ready? One, two, three. Love them. That's what you do. I'm not saying it's easy to figure out how to express love for them. That is our work. But that is our work. It's to love them. So let's just rehearse this. I'm going to say a few situations. I want you to answer with that. Love them. Because it's the answer to everything for us. When your friend at school stabs you in the back, what should you do? When your boyfriend breaks up with you unfairly and in an immature way, what should you do? When your child will not behave, what should you do? When you get cut off in traffic, what should you do? When your waitress this afternoon is subpar, what should you do? When your parents do not and will not understand, what should you do? When your spouse is ungrateful for what you do, what should you do? When your ex is taking you for a ride concerning your money or your kids, what should you do? When your adult child rebels against you or against God, what should you do? When you find out the person you helped in a benevolent way lied to get your time, energy, or money, what should you do? When you disagree with someone on a very important matter of biblical doctrine, what should you do? When someone's disorganization habits drive you crazy, what should you do? When someone's hyper-organization problems drive you crazy, what should you do? When someone takes you to court, what should you do? When someone accuses you wrongly, what should you do? When someone decides to put the last brick in a wall surrounding you to kill you because you're reading your Bible and you won't stop, what should you do? That's on the list, evidently. That's on the list. That's Christian love. See, Christian love is not... It's not noticeable or even notable because, because we're a loving people, like in general, okay? Christian love is notable and a light in the world because of its extent. It's because of its extent. There are tons of groups that are not the church that build their whole organization and mission around love. Tons. What makes us stand out is Christian love. What we're talking about today. That there is no one on the planet, stranger or close to me, that can outrun our love for them. That's what makes it Christian. That's what makes it a light. If there is a love that is going to save souls, if there is a love that exists that's going to attract people to the best possible life that Jesus came to model and then died to give, it's going to be Christian love. It's going to be this. And anything less, anything less that you hold on to, don't call it Christian. Don't call it Christian. John won't let you because Jesus won't let him. So our love includes, of course, family. That's not always easy. It includes, of course, church. The Bible's clear on that. That is also not always easy. It includes strangers. 
says you might be entertaining angels. So love everybody because you never know. But it goes to the extent of enemy. You've already heard this verse from Bobby, but I want you to listen to the next one. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But why? Because that is what's going to make you noticeable and define you as a son or daughter of God. That's what he says. This is the kind of love. If you don't have this, don't call it Christian. If you're not doing this, don't call it Christian. That's the kind of love that's going to be found nowhere but inside the people who have the Holy Spirit of Christ living and loving for them. And this word love, it's not just supposed to be merely framed in a prominent place, preached about as your church as the highest priority. It's not supposed to just be on a banner on your baptistry at church. It's supposed to live in you. You can do it. And you're supposed to do it. 1 John 2, 8. It's truth is seen in him and in you. That love is seen in you. John believed it. John believed it's possible. If you don't believe it's possible, then for you it's not. So it's your work to believe that you can love. That person you were visualizing at the beginning, it is your undeniable opportunity to practice and to grow and to surrender and to find out what living in the light actually looks like. On that day, on that day, no more will you be, it's not that you won't be hurt or upset or have to figure out appropriate boundaries or whatever by people's harming you, but no more will you think you have to be undone. Love covers a multitude of sins. There's a lot of meat in that one phrase. And it's what he wants to give you. I want to ask our elders and ministers to move. And I want to, they're just moving around the room in case anyone is struggling maybe with that person and you need to pray or confess or, or maybe someone here wants to follow this Jesus. We will walk right with you through it. But I want to read one more story. It's a short one. This one's not so distant past. It's from Soviet Lithuania in the 1970s. Another woman named Nijole. When Nijole was sentenced in Soviet Lithuania, she told the court, this is her speech, this is the happiest day of my life. I was judged today for the cause of truth and love towards men. What cause could be more important? I have an enviable fate, a glorious destiny. My condemnation will be my triumph. I regret only having done so little for my neighbors. Standing today on the side of the eternal truth of Jesus Christ, I remember his fourth beatitude. Blessed are those which do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. There exists no greater joy than to suffer for truth and for one's fellow men. How could I not rejoice when God Almighty has promised that light will overcome darkness and truth will overcome error and lies? We must condemn evil, but we must love the man. 
even the one in error. This you can learn only at the school of Jesus Christ, who is the only truth for all, the only way, and the only life. Good Jesus, your kingdom comes into our souls. She was sentenced to three years in prison for being a Christian. After being freed, she had opportunity to meet the Pope in Rome. And he asked her, how was it in jail? She replied, romantic. Romantic. Who, who thinks like that? Who talks like that? Who loves like that? Christians. Christians. That's who. Paul says, he agrees with John, he agrees with Jesus when he says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love bears a few things. Is that what he says? No, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Christian love thinks it's never supposed to stop. Christian love thinks that love is never supposed to end. Christian love does that. We're Christians. That's what sets us as a light on the hill. When you find yourself in a position where loving someone is hard and who isn't in that position, that's your opportunity to express Christian love. And just remember, God's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't done for you. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if we can help you in any way, in this or in any area, please come.